with you, North Place Church. How are you today? Good? Wow, you doing all right? You guys woke up, you're here, you excited to be here? Waking up's the hardest part, how many say yeah? Yeah, well, it's good to see you as well. Thank you, Pastor Brian, North Place staff, team, Pastor Bear, Pastor Mike, holding it down at the computer, and all the others. Pastor John, I mean, he's already preached, I was weeping, and he's like holding up his shirt, and I'm throwing, oh my God. Oh, we've already had church, haven't we? Haven't we? Well, it's great to see you. As I said, Pastor Brian has been kind enough to let me come here for a year and and essentially sit and heal and analyze my life and bring my brokenness, my struggles, my pain, uh, myself, my story, if you will, um, to this church and experience the grace and redemption that God offers. Pastor Brian, I always knew, we, we knew each other, you know, from acquaintances and I came here and, you know, at first it's so amazing. He's such a great communicator and great preacher and pastor. But as I've come to sit in the same chairs that you've sat in, I've come to know him in a more intimate role in, in the way of a pastor, like he, he cares, and, and he's the same guy up here that he's out there, and uh, the times we've sat at Starbucks, and he's spoken powerful words into my life, and I mean, he's taken me to some of the finest dining establishments all over the Metroplex. I mean, to sit there and hear your pastor order a number two at Whataburger, I mean, that's just an amazing feat as he yells across the car suit, no mustard, no mustard. Oh, and then a great meal at the fine dining place called Chicken Express. You may have heard of it. You may not have. Uh, there's nothing like leaving a church on a Sunday and going to Chicken Express with your pastor. I'm like, that's awesome. Um, so we've shared many meals and shared many times together with his family, and he's been gracious enough to sit with me uh, and create a space, carve a space, if you will, for me to uh, bring myself, as I've mentioned, here to this church and to this team. I thank you uh, for those opportunities, Pastor Brian, as you listen um, to this recording. But all of us this morning, we all bring our narrative. We all bring our stories. My name's Dave, of course, and I came from Jersey. Any Jersey fans in the house? Any? Really, never ever a fan of Jersey. It's like, I live there, but I'm not a fan. <laughs> I got out as soon as I could. My passport cleared later. Uh, I lived in Florida. I grew up in Florida. My dad was a pastor in a sleepy little beach town of 8,000 people. We lived across the street from the beach for 13 years. I came to realize that when I was five and six that, that not everyone lived at the beach. That was strange to me. And we, we had my eight-year-old birthday party at the beach every day, getting off the bus, home from school, go to the beach. And so you want to talk about two stark, stark background changes, a farm boy from Arkansas and a beach boy from Florida, uniting in sexy Texas. Whoa! <laughs> the universe colliding together. Ah. Uh, So then my parents moved me at the age of 16 from the sandy shores of Florida, you can tell I miss it, uh, to New Jersey, which is a fantastic move to make in December. You stand at the bus stop waiting for the bus to come in 20-degree weather, thinking, where were the palm trees? Where did that go? Um, So then it came time to me, that's where I experienced God in New Jersey and became a Christian and then began to say, God, what do you want for me? And I said, you know, I'm going to go to Bible college. So I prayed about it. I went and looked at North Central University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I looked at Southwestern University in Waxahachie, Texas, and decided I'm going to go to Florida. (laughs) I said, I don't like the cold and I don't have a horse. So I don't know how this is going to work with me going to Texas I really thought that, too. I really thought. I said, you know, uh, everybody in the East Coast thinks that Texans listen to country music, ride bulls, and everybody has a horse. Like, I, I thought driving up to Walmart that there'd be places to tie your horse <laughs> out front. Uh, and so it didn't help that my first Sunday in Irving, when I drove in, and my friends were like, sitting up in my apartment and all, and I walked into Walmart, and there's a guy who's wearing boots, which, okay, but he's got the spurs on. Like, and he's walking like this, like, whoa. And I'm thinking... 
where's this horse at? I can't see it. Where, where's he tying it up at? I've come to learn that it's not all like that. Pastor at my old church took me to a cattle sale barn in Graham, Texas. And you want to take an East Coast beach boy and put him in a cattle sale barn with a bunch of cowboys, that's a unique experience. He told me, look, don't flinch or raise your hand because that could mean you're buying a cow. I mean, because some of these old guys in there sitting in these plastic chairs, like, they're just kind of raising a finger or they just nod or they tip their hat and they're buying cows. I'm like, people buy cows? Wow, this is crazy. But it's good to be still in the city and suburbs, and it's good to be with you with my story. Like I said, we all live in a story. You live in a story. You're living out a narrative that started at your birth. You have essentially been a character in your own story, and you've been on the stage of this story your whole life. The whole show has been about you. Some of you are like, I've always known it was all about me now. Wow. You've been the main character. Your parents have had a role. Friends have had a role, family have had a role, brothers and sisters had a role. Some people have been on the stage longer than others. Some have come on for a few brief moments and either broken bad news to you or good news to you or spoken hurtful and harmful words and they've walked off and those events have marked you and scarred you for who your life is. But you have a story. You bring your unique view of life and God and grace to this church which is one of the most beautiful things about church, isn't it? That it's so diverse, that we all celebrate our different backgrounds and essentially our different markings, but we rally around one central truth and that grace really does redeem. We as characters in our story are characters of God's redemption at work in our lives. And so this morning as I stand before you, not as a pastor, not as a teacher, but as a member of North Place Church, I sit in your seats I sit near the back often, but I sit in your seats, and I sit there and experience God and his grace inside this church. So what I bring is my own story, my own narrative, and my own interpretation of grace, and I hope in the few moments that we share together this morning that our hearts can link up and we can walk away here encouraged that God is redeeming all of us and our great story, and that's the story of God's redemption to the world. Amen? Let's take out your Bibles. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2, and let's dive in there, shall we? Philippians chapter 2, Paul's writing a letter to the Philippian church, and he's telling them some things. He's reminding them of some things, and we're going to look at some of those today. Paul's a great writer, and we're going to look at a lot of his, his, uh, his letters he's written to the churches, and hopefully walk away with some impacting parts. Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin with verse Lord, thank you for this moment to be here today. Lord, it's by your grace that I stand here, a human being who's been redeemed by you. And I thank you for this opportunity, but more importantly, Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in this church, the expansion that's happening, the church building, the movements, the lives that are being impacted every week. And Lord, it's my prayer in the next few moments that you will be here with us, be fully present in this room with us, Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts, and when we leave this place, may we say to one another, surely the presence of the Lord was in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude or in your relationships with one another, you should have the same attitude or mind of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Two people meet each other at a bus stop. They're on a rural bus route, and a guy is walking up, and he's surprised to see a Catholic nun sitting at the same bus stop. He says, what's a Catholic nun doing all the way out here? Maybe she's riding into the city for a meeting or something. It's strange to see. So they strike up conversation. He tells her that he went to Catholic school when he was a little boy, and they talk faith. They talk work and job and relationships. And as this midst of this conversation, waiting for the bus, he says, you know, sister, I'm just going to ask you something, and it, it is completely insane and crazy, and please forgive me. I want you to hear it right, but ever since Catholic school, I've always had this weird desire to kiss a nun. She says, what? And he says, well, she scoots away kind of away. He says, no, 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 it's nothing, nothing crazy. It's just like a little kiss on the cheek. And she says, well, that, does, that seems harmless. And he says, yeah, you know, it's just the thing. She goes, well, I'll let you kiss me on two conditions. First, you must be Catholic. And second, you must be single. And he says, hot dog, it's my lucky day. I am Catholic, and I just dumped my girlfriend. I am single and ready to mingle. And he said, well, she says, well, what harms a kiss? So he leads in, kisses her on the cheek, and jumps up and says, Ha, sister, the joke's on you. I am married, and I am a Presbyterian. And her voice deepens, and she says, No, the joke's on you. My name's Larry, and I'm on my way to a costume party. (laughs) North Place Church, it's not always what you think. My dad, at the age of 17, tells me he's going to get me my new car. Now, mind you, 16 years of old, you you can drive a car in most every state in the world, except in New Jersey, who decides, you know what, no, let's delay that a year and make them suffer even more. So you have to be 17 to drive in Jersey. So our move to Florida not only moved me from the beach, but it took away my car. And at 17, I'm excited and waiting because my dad says, I'm going to get your new car. I'm going to come home with it, and I'm mowing the grass how many push, push mower? No riding mower. I was running out there with a push mower. Any push mowers in the house? Yeah, this fancy stuff riding around in a mower. I was back there with the push mower rolling up and down. And I hear this noise over the mower. I'm like, what is that noise? I turn back and my dad is driving this hunk of metal and leaking oil that some would even possibly in some world call a car. This thing's just hideous. And, and my dad jumps down and says, here is your new car. Dad, that is not new. <laughs> It was a 1982 Dodge Colt. It was a four-speed, not even five, four-speed stick shift. I don't know how to drive a stick. The color rust brown. The floorboard was rotted through. If you had the headlights on and the wipers, the heat didn't work. If the heat was on, the wipers, the lights were dim. I mean, you had to make some choices in the rain and snow. Like, okay, what do I do? Do I want heat? Do I want to freeze? Uh, One time I rolled down my window, and the entire window just fell out of the shatters in the door. In February, I'm like driving around with like hoods, like, what's up, hey? You know, at traffic lights, people are like, what is this guy? Looks like he robbed the bank with the ski mask. Like, hey, how's it going? <laughs> driving my hoopty, baby. And my dad says, the best part, Dave, is this. Dad, there's a best part. The best part is it cost $100. I got a new car who he said, new to you, for 100 bucks. One time I was driving it, and I made a right-hand turn around the traffic and I have my seatbelt on, thank God, because my closed driver's side door flung open, just the middle of turning, <laughs> flung open. I shut it, it never opened again. 
I had a date that Saturday night. I roll up to her house. I open the door, and she says, thank you for getting my door. I said, I'm so sorry, honey. I have to climb in first. (laughs) It's not a new car, and it's not always what you think. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to say to us here in the book of Philippians, is that the way the world works is different because of Christ. Jesus has a way of flipping things and saying weakness is strength, that suffering leads to joy. The kingdom of God in so many ways is upside down. And Paul's referencing Philippians 2 saying, hey guys, remember this song? In your scriptures, it may be indented or quoted. That is because Paul is referencing a famous song or poem or phrase from that day. He's saying, guys, you're singing this song, but do you really know what it means? He's saying, Jesus left heaven. He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or taken or given, but he empties himself and becomes a servant. And not only does he stop there, but he becomes obedient to death and then death on a cross. And then once Jesus gets there, the next scripture says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, heaven and earth will bow and everything under the earth. In America, we have three class systems, the upper class, middle class, and lower class. And Jewish culture was very similar to this in the time frame as well. They had four classes. You had your royalty, people living up in the palaces with some fine linen, purple linen. And you had your merchants, people in the markets. A step below merchants, the middle class, you would say, would you call your lower class, which would be slaves. And then beneath slaves, the lowest of the lows in the culture were criminals, and more importantly, executed criminals. So we see Jesus do something interesting. He leaves the riches of heaven, descends and is born into the home of a carpenter who would be a middle-class merchant. And then doesn't stop there, but the scripture says becomes a slave, becomes obedient, and becomes a servant, a slave. And then doesn't stop there. says he becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. He descends the cultural ladder from the royalties of heaven all the way down to the lowest of the lows. And once he hits rock bottom, the scripture says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name of above every name. In American culture, we hear it so many times and we see it in every Barnes and Noble, the 18 ways to succeed, the nine steps, the 41 principles, the 1,088 ways to say I love you. I don't know. Uh, But how many times do you hear teachings that say get to the top in contrast to reach to the bottom? Because it seems like Jesus' goal wasn't to get to the top, but to descend and become identified with the lowest of the lows. And when he got everything out and became identified with executed criminals, the scripture says, then therefore God exalted him to where? The highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. How much time do you spend reaching for the top? How much time do you spend reaching for the bottom? The most interesting thing that we just shared a a series here at this church on vision And there's nothing wrong with having a dream and pursuing it and and doing it with excellence and finding your talents and and running after something in your heart. Indeed, we tell the young people this church, dream, go big, you can do it, succeed, reach for the stars. But what Jesus is saying here is you have to do it in complete humility and in the spirit of surrender. Because in yourself, you can't do it. You You need God's strength to succeed. And so Jesus turns and says, no. I want to be identified with the lowest so God can exalt me to the highest. We want to get to the top. We want to climb, whatever the cost, but I think Jesus wants us to get to the bottom. He even says that we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And and if someone hits us in the cheek, we turn them the other. 
He kind of says, listen, you've, you've thought it was this. You've heard it said this way, but I say to you, like in other words, this was misinterpreted. Here's what it's really supposed to mean. And he begins to talk about the kingdom of God in ways no one else has discussed. It's upside down, and it's not always what you think. They always say to Jesus, the kids are there, and the disciples are on kid patrol. They're like, get the kid out of here. Nope, we ain't got no dum-dums. We don't have blue blow pops, nothing. Go on, kids. And Jesus is like, no, bring the kids. Bring the kids. In fact, you guys should be like them. And they're all like, whoa. Because Jesus sees the kingdom of God so differently than so many times that we do. Let's look at it a little bit further in Matthew chapter 27, or 26. If you've got your scriptures turned there, if not, have it on the screens. Matthew 26, this interplay, this exchange continues as Jesus is showing us the way that power and strength and struggle really works. Matthew 26. I believe that Jesus is trying to teach us through this that surrender and trust leads to blessing and exaltation. Surrender and trust leads to blessing and exaltation. Matthew 26. The story of Jesus becoming arrested. He's in a garden. He's praying. Lots of chaos is happening around Jesus. A lot of things that he can't control at the moment. His disciples are sleeping. He's like, guys, can you just stay awake with me one more hour? The culmination of all his, his, his worries and his, his fears are coming on him, and he's, he's anticipating and feeling the sins of the world weighing on his shoulders. And one of the most intense moments for Jesus, his disciples aren't there, and then he asks them to stay awake. And in verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived, and with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for a sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Jesus says to Peter, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think I can call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So Jesus is in this moment. It's scary. There's a lot happening. A whole mob comes. A crowd armed with clubs and swords are coming to Jesus in the garden. And Jesus just stands up and essentially just takes it. And Peter is so frustrated, I can imagine him look at Jesus going, do something. You could just do something right now. And Peter doesn't see anybody doing anything, so he says, I'll take things in my own hand. He pulls out his sword and cuts the man's ear off. But Jesus looks at him and says, what are you doing? Peter, put your sword away. I can almost picture Jesus holding the dude's ear like, really? Really, Peter? This, this is what I taught you? I taught you when, when things get scary and things get crazy, you just swing away? You just take out your sword? Put that word on the screen, swords. And we all have them, don't we? It's so easy when people come at us with swords and clubs for us to pull out our sword and begin swinging away. When someone says that about us, it's so easy to pull that out and go right back at them and to match them word for word, swing for swing. Because we all have swords and we all can cause, cause damage with our swords. And I think Jesus is saying to Peter and saying it to us today, put your swords away because it feels like you're doing something. Jesus, just do something. You won't do anything, I'll do it. And it feels like you're powerful. It feels like you're strong. It feels like you can do some stuff when you got your sword in your hand. But I think this is the realization that Jesus is taking us to as we look at the kingdom being upside down and it not always being what we think. Swords appear strong, but they're actually quite weak. 
because it feels like you're doing something. It feels like you've got strength in your hand, but in this scripture, we can see that the sword is actually pretty weak. Next slide. Jesus appears weak, but he's actually quite strong. You know the definition for meekness? Scripture says, you know, blessed are the meek, and we kind of, it sounds like, you know, wimpy, like, how you doing today? I'm meek. It's, ugh. Blessed are the meek. It just sounds kind of like, ah. Eh. And the, really the word meek means strength under control, which is what Jesus displays in one of the most chaotic moments of his life. They're coming with armed clubs and swords. And Jesus, being so meek and full of strength under control, says, put your sword away. Peter, don't you realize I could call on 12 legions, 72,000 angels right now that could come to my disposal? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? Like, like I got it under control. I got a plan, and I surrender to that plan because it's easy to pull out our sword and swing away. You see, Jesus with Pontius Pilate does the same thing. The next day, he's brought before Pilate, and Pilate says, listen, Jesus, don't you realize it's I who has the power to free you or crucify you? And Jesus, being all cool and collective, says, Pilate, you have no power over me if it were not given from above. Ooh, Jedi moment. Wow says, you have no power over me if it weren't from above. He's in the garden. He's praying, and it's getting out of control. He's fiercely independent, but he says, God, your will be done in my life. Jesus appears weak, but he's actually quite strong. This whole wordplay, this, this paradox of weakness and strength continues all through the scripture. In fact, 2 Corinthians 12 is a beautiful illustration of it. Paul is referencing his struggle his, some would say addiction, blindness, people following around from town to town, heckling me. He's like, I got this thorn in my flesh. I got this thing I can't control that's got me. And he talks about it in 2 Corinthians 12 and begins to give some beautiful language to what it is to be weak. Language that I think we could use today and rally around to find great strength in our life. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 9. So Paul's got this thing and he's pleading with God. And God says back, but I say to you, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It doesn't say the power of God is made perfect in your strengths. What's the scripture say? Power in your life comes from what? Weakness. Isn't that so strange? How do you tell your boss that? Hey, dude, like I got it under control. I, I, I'm, I'm doing like not, not that great right now. I'm pretty weak. Uh, you might want to step it up. Well, God's my strength. Really? Yeah. You don't have all the answers. You may think you do. You may be a walking Wikipedia, all right? <laughs> but you don't have all the answers. And Jesus is saying to, to Paul here that my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness, in insults. I delight in hardships delight in persecution. I delight in difficulty. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul's like, I don't even like just delight in these. I celebrate my weakness because it's an opportunity for God to work in my life. How many of us, including myself, we spend all the time we have making sure it's together do I look right? Do I sound right? Do I got the right attitude, actions? Some of us can do church so well, but on the inside, we're so filthy. Jesus even says, you clean the outside of the cup. The inside's dirty. And how many of us, if the truth were to be known, were carrying around such struggle, such addiction, such weakness, such inability 
And we've been putting on a mask and faking it. And the way that you're going to tap into strength that's going to carry you through to the next day and carry you through to the vision that you have is to begin to acknowledge the weakness that you have and let Christ's power flood in in strength. I would argue that in God's strength, there's no pride. Because if you, are, if you celebrate weakness, your inability to control the situation, God's strength then come and infuses you, and in God's strength, there's no pride. So I believe that the answer for a church community to begin to launch into places they'd never thought they could go would be to begin to acknowledge and name their very weaknesses. What would happen? What would happen if a church, North Place Church, began to be the known as the community of people who are broken, but yet they're being remade by grace? What would it be like to, to be known as the people that maybe don't have all the answers, but are trusting in a God who does? What would it be like to be known as the people who say, I am weak, then I am strong? I had a friend a while back say to me, you know, like, you know, 30's the new 20, 40's the new 30, pink's the new brown, uh, Max the new windows. Uh, but I would suggest to you a new one this morning that weak is the new strong. Weak is the new strong. I will delight in my weaknesses for when I'm weak, then I am strong. Now, weakness isn't something I believe that we strive for. And we'll put this up on the screens here. Weakness isn't a new reality. Weakness is rooted in how things are. Like you may say, well, I'm going to be the kind of person now that doesn't try to control everything. No, you never had that. Now you're just being honest about it. So weakness isn't something we strive for. It's, it's really something we already are. Like I had this epiphany. Like when I feel totally helpless, like I'm like, I'm completely helpless in this situation. You ready what, what, what came to me? It's because I am. <laughs> like I can't, can't you, well, right, I can't. There's a saying they even have in the recovery movement from Celebrate Recovery that says, we cannot control people, places, or things. The only thing that we can control is our ability to surrender. And we see Jesus in Philippians 2 surrendering the will of God. We see Jesus in the garden surrendering. We see Jesus, God on a cross, surrendering. And I would even argue that the greatest moment of weakness, the cross, the Romans, the people gathering around mocking and laughing, celebrating that they had taken out the Son of God, I would argue that it looks like Jesus' weakest moment, doesn't it? I mean, if you're, like, this guy's God on earth, he's hanging on a cross. And look, he bleeds. The King, the Son of God, the King of the Jews, bleeds. But I would say that Jesus' appearance, the appearance of his greatest moment of weakness actually was his greatest moment of strength for the universe. See, the world works differently. And weakness isn't a new reality. It's rooted in how things are. So what does that mean? Give me handles, Dave, so I can work with that. It means I believe these three things, and you can write them down if you want. There's three, thing, there's three things I believe that are true about me that are absolutely true about each and every one of us and are true about you. And that's this. First thing you need to know about me, and maybe even yourself, is that you're marked. Before you were born in your mother's womb, God had a plan and a purpose and intricately woven, wove you together. You're marked. You are marked with a plan. God has a story, a path for you to walk in. You may be new to church. This may be your first time, but there is a plan, a story that God wants you to live in that involves grace and redemption. You are marked by God. I am marked. God has placed a marking on me. I carry around a marking bearing my character. But beyond my calling, beyond my character, beyond who I'm marked to be, you need to know second and right up front that I am marred. I am marred by sin. There's a lot of Genesis 3 in me. There's hiding and there's blaming. In Genesis chapter 3, God looks for him in the garden and says, where are you, Adam? 
They hide because sin separates them from God. And how many times do I hide when I'm exposed in my sin? When I'm exposed in my hurt, I want to hide. I want to pull away. And God wants to come and find me. And then I blame. I'm full of hiding and I'm full of blaming. Perhaps the most audacious statement ever said to God in the garden was this. The woman you made, she gave it to me. And I, and he almost whispers this, I ate it. Is that ownership? Absolutely not. That is saying, I'll take the blame as long as someone else is there. And that's part of the marred nature that I am. And I believe the marred nature of all of us, that we kill, we covet, we lie, we lust, we're full of hiding, we're full of blaming. But I'm marked by God. I am marred by this sin, but I celebrate that it doesn't stop there. I believe I'm being remade by God's grace. That grace is transforming me and grace is transforming you. That the process doesn't stop there. And that in the midst of me admitting that I am weak, in the midst of me admitting that I am marred, I begin to tap into grace and strength that didn't come from me. And I begin to walk in God's new freedom. There's Genesis 3 in me and I believe there's Genesis 3 in you. Which has led me to this phrase. I've carried this phrase around for a year and that's this. I believe I'm a glorious ruin. I'm a beautiful mess. (laughs) I am a mixture of beauty and chaos, but I think God's redeeming me, and I think that grace is reaching to me. So I'm a glorious ruin. Someone met me the other day, like, so what do you do? I'm a glorious ruin, and they're like, uh, (laughs) not really, I'm in sales, that's what I do, but I'm a glorious ruin. I'm a beautiful wreck. I'm a story, a character in God's story of redemption and grace. And the beautiful thing that to know about this grace is it doesn't need, you don't have to do anything to get it. We hear it all the time, but so many of us don't listen. We're like, oh, we got to go to church. We got to pray more. I got to ask for forgiveness. I got to take communion to get this grace and redemption. No, you just got to ask and just receive the love that God gives you. So some of us think if we admit that we're weak and marred, that we have weakness in us, that somehow others will run away from us, or the fact that God won't love us as much. And the reality is God loves us just as we are. Let's look in Job 38. You don't have to turn there. We'll have this on the screens. One of the funnest parts of the Bible to me, the book of Job. Job's got some questions for God. Job's like, God, I gotta ask you why this, why this, why this? He's going off and God's like, all right, you done? You ready? I'm gonna ask you some some questions, Job. And this was the first time ever in human history someone went, uh, 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 where God just came back on Job. He says, Job, you ready? You ready? Okay, you're not done? All right, okay, wait. Then in Job 39, he says, Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? And Job's like, uh, uh, no. Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? God, no, no. Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they will give birth? They crouch down, they bring forth their young. Job's like, am I getting a science lesson? Is this eighth grade? I mean, God's walking him through creation, basically saying, Job, you think you got the answers? Like, you don't even know who put Orion's belt in its place. Who causes the sun to rise and the sun to set? And I think Job, after one chapter, is kind of getting the picture. But God ain't done. He, uh, 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 he's still going. And Job 38, verse 5, who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? To which all of us respond instantly, the same guy who let the dogs out. Exactly, right? <laughs> Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? I gave it the wasteland at its home, the salt flats at its habitat. It laughs at the commotion in town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills from its pasture and searches for any green thing. God's basically saying, Job, I've even made donkeys. And I made two types of donkeys. I've got like wild donkey. Oh, he's out there having fun in the pasture. And then I got city donkey. 
City Donkey's depressed. He's like, I got owners, I got ropes, I wish my owner would lose about 20 pounds. You know, he's carrying stuff, walking around. And Urban Donkey is looking at Wild Donkey. Wild Donkey's like, ha I'm just hanging out in the pasture, living the dream, baby, living the dream. And the Wild Donkey laughs at Urban Donkey because he says, I don't have a master, I don't have ropes, I don't have an owner. I'm just out here hanging out. Now listen, what's the purpose of a wild donkey? Do we eat wild donkey? You're at Outback. You'll have a wild donkey, medium rare. Oh, it's like, oh that's wild. That's grass-fed beef or wild, free-range chicken. It's wild donkey. And so wild donkey, he has no purpose. He's just a wild donkey. He's just out there hanging out. But God's like, listen, Job, I love creation so much, I made two types of donkeys, one that works and one that's on vacation all the time. You know what? I love both of them. He doesn't do anything. He's just a donkey hanging out, and I love him just because I made him. But God doesn't stop there. He goes on in 13, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the feathers of the stork. The ostrich, she lay her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crust them, that some wild animal may trample them. God's like, I made this creature, and I really don't understand why they do that. Like, Job, why does she do that? She's not that smart. And then he goes on to say, she treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not for the labor uh, that her labor was in vain. For God did not endow her with wisdom. You can quote scripture to somebody, be like, listen, I really got a word for you this morning. God didn't endow you with wisdom, did he? And then it says, or give her her fair share of good sense. So God's like, I made a stupid ostrich that has no common sense whatsoever. But then he says, but when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Because when she runs, she feels his pleasure. He laughs at horse and rider. God makes stupid ostriches. God makes wild donkeys and calls them good just because he made them. He loves them. Now you. Guess the good news today, I didn't put this on a slide, but you can take this away. God loves stupid people. (laughs) God loves wild donkeys. God loves stupid ostriches. God loves stupid people. God loves people that don't have good sense. God loves broken and marred people in the midst of their sin and chaos, and you don't have to do anything to earn it, to get it, to have it. God loves you just like you are, and he made you, and he's got a plan, and he wants you to live inside his story, but the beginning of that comes from acknowledging that I'm a broken person. God loves you just as you are. And weakness becomes an opportunity for God to work in your life. I'm gonna put a phrase on the board and it's gonna hopefully sit well with you. I can't do everything. Some of you type A's just set up in your seat. Don't tell me what I can't do, son. But I would challenge you today that you can't do everything. You can't save yourself. You can't obtain that thing all on your own. You need, you need to rely and depend upon God to succeed. You can't do everything. And the good news is you don't have to do everything. That God loves you just as you are. In some senses, God gives us our strengths. And he sends us into the world with our strengths to expose our heart for him. He gives us our strengths, invites us to grow them, and then places us in a world where we can use our giftings and strengths. But what's God's bold purpose for your strength? To place you in those opportunities where he can reveal himself to you through your weakness. God doesn't need your strength. He's got plenty of those. But he reveals himself to you through your weakness. The result of being a broken person and acknowledging this grace. How many of you would say the most significant moments of your growth came from parts and pains and tragedy 
how many of your of growth went because it all didn't go right, but how many of it, you're shaped because who you are because it all fell apart? It's like you're marked and you carry this thing. Like it's weird that there's an art to suffering. There should be some cards in front of you in the seat pocket, some like index cards. And if you have those, can you just distribute them around to the people around you? Some mushers, if you can, help us out and make sure there's some pens right there in the little crevice where the, the offering envelopes are. We're gonna have a little group activity. Gonna sit around the magic green carpet for a few minutes. So take those. If you got a pen, take one out. If you got a couple, lend one to your neighbor. Everyone with a card. Because the most beautiful thing is that we're not in this weakness together. Alone, forgive me. We're in this weakness together. We don't just walk through the difficulties and struggles of life by ourselves. We walk through it with a community of people, which that's really the purpose of church. And although we may be strangers and although you may be sitting next to someone you know really well or know and love for a long time, you, you may not know all the parts of their story, but we all celebrate and can rally around a few truths today. So if you've got a pen, take it out and have your card. When I was in the eighth grade, I broke my left hand. Doesn't sound bad to you, but it's bad to me because I'm left-handed. Any left-handed people in the house? Ooh, left-handed people are always the crazy ones. Like, I'm left-handed, yeah! Right, I'm right-handed. You guys are all the opposite. So, well, I noticed when I had my left hand broken, I couldn't write with my left hand with the cast, so I had to write with my right hand. I looked like a first grader doing spelling. I mean, it was terrible. And ever since then, when someone's got a cast, and it's, I ask them what, if they're right-handed or left-handed or if they have trouble writing. Or you notice people with crutches. How many have ever broke a leg or a foot, and you've been on crutches or sprained an ankle, and you've walked around with those things, and you're hobbling around? I had a friend who, who broke his foot recently, and he was in the Reagan Airport in, in uh, DCA in Washington, and had to like power through on his crutches all the way from the gate to the car of someone picking him up. And I was like, how was that? He's like, man, my arms. And if you've been on crutches, you know the pain that comes from that. And you can see someone else on crutches and you go, ooh, I feel that. Well, in the same way is true with the struggles and the markings that we have in our lives. I want you to do something. Let me take your opposite hand. If you're left-handed, obviously you're gonna take your right hand. If you're right-handed, you'll take your left hand. And I want you to write on that card this phrase right here, I know how you feel. Like that phrase, I know how you feel. Don't worry about it looking very little kiddish. We're going to pass out candy bars at the end of service. <laughs> Go ahead and write that down. I know how you feel. I believe we have so much in common today. We'll begin to discover that. I know how you feel. One of the most beautiful things, again, of struggle and difficulty is that we're not alone. How many got your car done? Wave it up in the air. Just like you don't care. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, what I want you to do is this. And when I announce this, if this applies to you, what I'd like you to do is stand. And then maybe it's somebody you're with. Maybe it's someone you don't know, which would be great. I want you to stand. And if you have someone that shares that in common, they're standing too. I want you to trade cards. You don't need to say anything. You just need to, to trade cards. So this. Everybody got your card done? Okay, cool. If you... If you could, just hold off for a minute, brother, that's awesome. If you, if you have, um, if you have told a piano player to stop playing, I want you to stand. <laughs> One person, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I see that hand. Um, we're going to have a moment as a group experience, if this applies to you. If you or someone you love have struggled with someone who's been addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol, I'd like you to stand. This room. Good. And what I'd like you to do is look at them in the eye and hand the card, trade cards with somebody that's near you and around you. 
And you can be seated. If you, if you have been affected by the horrible disease of cancer, it's affected you, a family member, a friend, I'd like you to stand. And I'd like you to trade cards with someone near you. You can be seated. If you've ever been betrayed, I'd like you to stand and trade cards with someone near you. I know how you feel. You can go ahead and seat. If you've ever attended the funeral of someone you loved, I'd like you to stand. You could be seated. I know how you feel. You know, it's so interesting. It happened in the first service, too. You think it'd be real solemn, but it's like, hey, yeah, me too. Everybody's kind of like, wow. And it's interesting to see in this, this moment what was just a stranger maybe next to you or a friend that you've known a while. There's a different atmosphere in the room. The fact that we've been through something, that someone else knows how we feel. In fact, one of my favorite authors, Anne Lamont, says this. She says, the most powerful words in the universe are the words, me too. That we're not alone in our struggle and our difficulty. When we say we've lost a loved one, wow, almost all of us have walked that path. But others know how we feel. But it doesn't stop there. I don't just take comfort that others know how I feel. I take great comfort that my God knows how I feel. If you look through the scriptures, you can see the human characteristics of Jesus. The scripture goes way out of its way to say, yeah, Jesus was God, but he also was human, just like us. In Matthew 4, verse 2, he says he's hungry. In John 4, it says he's tired. In Mark 3, he's angry and deeply distressed. He's frustrated. In Luke 22, he's in anguish. Matthew 26, he's sorrowful, troubled, lonely. And I would even argue in John 19, he's thirsty and he's helpless. And Jesus, it even says in Hebrews that we have a Savior who does not stand removed, who understands, who empathizes with our weakness. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one, Jesus, who in every way has been tempted just as we are without sin. So the most encouraging thing I can say to you this morning is, yes, there are people that know what it's like in this room that are with you. But also there's one who knows what it's like, whose name is Jesus, who says to you, me too. You know, everybody's got this thing, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. You know, Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. I want to suggest to you a new one this morning, and that's this, Jehovah Ditto. Jehovah Ditto, the God who knows what it's like. He's the God who knows what it's like. You know, there's a scripture that I take great comfort with, and I'll close with this. John 5, 17 says, one of the most amazing things, in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my brokenness, if you've ever felt like God has abandoned you or you felt like, God, are you working? Like, if I, if I admit my weakness, if I admit my struggle, if I surrender this thing, this person, place, or thing, if I, if I become the kind of person that celebrates weakness, is it really going to be okay? Do you have a plan in the midst of all of this? And one day I was reading the book of John, chapter 5, and the words just jumped off the screen at me. It jumped off the page. It came alive. Jesus heals some guy on the Sabbath. And all the religious people are like, you just healed this guy. They're all, they're all caught up in all the wrong stuff. The guy's healed. And they're all worried about him doing it on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, what's the problem? He's like, because I did work? <laughs> He's like, my father is always at his work. And I, too, am working. 
He's like, what are you talking about? God taking a day off? No, I'm always working because my father is always at work. Think of that phrase, my father is always at work. At your job, my father is always at work. In your family, my father is always at work. In your difficulty, in your struggle, my father is at work. In the loss of that loved one, God is at work. Which leads me to my last point today. This too, God will use. The difficulty, the marking, the weakness, the sin. God doesn't waste anything. Pastor Brian talks about that. You know, the God, the God who wastes nothing. He doesn't waste our pain. But more than that, this too, this, this brokenness, addiction, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, this. God will even use this, which ultimately brings us to the place of surrender. Let's pray this morning. God, thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you that we're not alone in our weakness and struggle. Thank you that, Lord, as we admit weakness, we can tap into great strength that didn't come from us. Lord, some of us, we act like we're all right, but we're so tired right now. Lord, I know there's some people in this room, they are so tired. God, I pray that as they begin to acknowledge that they can't do everything, that your strength will come in. Some of them have dreams. And help them, Lord, to say, you know, they need you to accomplish those dreams. So, Lord, we take that word that's on the screen, we take that word and put it in our heart, and we say, we surrender. We admit that we are broken people. We despise and we are despised. And we live in the midst of chaos, but grace is redeeming us. Lord, redeem us today. Now you right where you're at with your head bowed and your eyes closed. Why don't you call out to God and say, God, in this weakness, in this strength, in this difficulty, in this relationship, I give this to you. I surrender. I've been holding on to this. I've been trying to conform this, shift this, make this person do this, and they won't. And today I give that up. I am weak. I am powerless. And I need your strength to come in. I lost a loved one, and God, I've been broken, and now I need strength to come into my life. Or I don't know how, where I'm going to go to school or how I'm going to get the money to do this. I can't pay the bills. I can't do it you say those things to God. Say them to God. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Speak to him. Speak to him. God, we surrender. We give it to you. You may feel tears coming. That's God saying, I'm pouring my strength into you. It's going to be okay. My father's at work. My father's at work. He's very busy, very busy with a plan, a purpose, a goal. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't walked out on you. He's right there with you, carrying you hand in hand. My father is at work. Lord, we surrender that thing today. We acknowledge our weakness, and God, as I pray we do that, infuse us with this great strength that only comes from you today. It only comes from you. It only comes from you. Look this way. Look this way. It's gonna be all right. Amen? Is God still in control? Do you trust him? You say, right now I do, but when I leave the parking lot, oh! Why don't you hold on to that? God is always at work. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's taking us somewhere. He didn't just say, okay, I died on the cross. I'll see you in a few years. He's got a plan. He's been working a plan since the beginning of creation. His first and foremost plan is to redeem you to his side, to bring you back. Secondly, he wants to surrender, you to surrender to his plan. His power is made perfect in your weakness. Stand with me as we dismiss today. I believe for many of you, that was a powerful moment of just saying those things to God or thinking or feeling them. But I think for others of you, there may be another step required. You may say, I, I need to come and surrender that. And we're gonna dismiss and you'll be free to leave. Just be reverent of those coming. But if you'd like to come to the front, there's nothing special about this. It's more like a symbolic act of saying, God, I give up control. I'm going to walk down to the front of the building and get prayer or just kneel or just sit and reflect 
on the word spoken and just let it soak in. Maybe that's the, an act of surrendering. Maybe it's taking the dream and, and it's tangible in your hands and saying, God, I place it at your feet. I place it at this front of the building. I place this person. I place my weakness. I place my struggle. And some of you, that extra step may be required today and we invite you to do it. There'll be others here at the front to pray with you and sit with you. Pastor Brian will be back next week and we'll have a great Sunday. But right now, let's infuse ourselves with the strength of God. And as you do that, as you give your weakness to him, may his strength infuse to every part of who you are. May his power be made perfect in your weakness. May the struggle, may the sin, may the addiction, may the grace of God rush to that place right now. And may you take great comfort in knowing today that my Father is always at work. May you rest. I mean really sleep. Some of you have been so stressed. I pray rest over you today that God is in control. He's in control. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. We'll be here at the front. We pray over you. It's great meeting you.